Welcome to episode 15 of the Obzingani Quick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back. This week Graham and I um, have put together a podcast for you where we discuss the perioperative and anaesthetic management of a condition that strikes fear into the hearts of many anaesthetists, um, the management of women with the morbid adherent placenta. We will hopefully follow this podcast with another one uh, where we sit down with some of our surgical colleagues and discuss um, the surgical aspects of management of this um, notoriously tricky condition. Okay, thanks again. Hope you find some useful advice and enjoy the show. Let's, perhaps Graham, do you want to uh, introduce the audience to the topic by let's just revising again and explaining what is uh, an accreta and the, di- the different definitions. Yeah, thanks Roger. We're just describing the uh, morbidly adherent placenta. So that is the placenta that um, doesn't uh, come away as uh, would be usual with the third stage of labour or the third stage of labour in even an operative delivery like a caesarean section. So an accreta is a placenta which adheres to the wall of the uterus. An increta is a placenta which invades into the wall of the uterus and a percreta is a placenta which invades through the wall of the uterus and beyond the serosa of the uterus and can um, invade um, adjacent structures. Yep. Um, most often we worry about invasion into the bladder but it could be into other structures as well. Yep, that's good. And so the main problems with this condition, obviously, is that um, the placenta is very vascular, so catastrophic bleeding can occur uh, in these patients. And I guess, uh, especially the percreter patients, there can be injury to all the urological organs. Exactly, and the blood loss can be antenatal, sorry, antepartum, um, intrapartum and postpartum. Okay, so we're not going to, uh, this is a big topic, we don't want to spend too much time on the diagnosis, imaging and things like that, but usually it is um, suspected in patients who have a previous caesarean scar and an anterior placenta, especially if it's low-lying. Yeah, so I'm always uh, a bit suspicious whenever there have been uh, serial ultrasounds done for low-lying placenta, even in patients who've never had caesarean sections. I like to see that... Uh, the low-lying placenta moves well away from the cervix and if there's any suspicion, any doubt that it's gone from a low-lying position to an anterior-posterior position or it's a even a major placenta previa, you know, uh, there, 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 there's, a, there's a risk that there's going to be um, morbidly adherent placenta or accreta. Okay. So I think it's my impression, I could be wrong, that m- the majority of patients with this condition are actually diagnosed... Uh, antenatally now but there is definitely a cohort of patients where this condition is missed and uh, you can very unexpectedly be um, thrown in the deep end having to manage this when it occurs um, when uh, catastrophic bleeding occurs at delivery okay we won't go into that too much Um, so let's just talk about the uh, antenatal uh, optimization or management once you refer to a patient who um, has been diagnosed with having this condition and then a little bit later we'll talk about the anaesthetic side of things, how we manage things. Um, so, um, feel free to interrupt, Graham. I might even oh. uh, stop in a second. But yeah, um, we maybe maybe we should just go back a little bit about yep. some of the just uh, the epidemiology with respect to uh, accreta. 
So um, I think a major placenta previa without a caesarean, the incidence of accreta is about 3%. Yep. So it's not insignificant. Um, the uh, incidence increases as the number of sections performed on the women increases. So a woman who's had one section with an anterior or low-lying placenta um, is likely to have uh, accreta about 10 to 15% of the time. If they've had two sections, it's somewhere like 20 to 25%. And if they've had three sections or more, it's like 40% yep. uh, risk of accreta. <coughs> and uh, so the institution that Graham and I work at, we probably see someone with this condition uh, every, I'm going to say every two or three weeks mm. at the moment. And certainly they seem to come in groups. You know, we have, uh, sometimes we have three or four in a very short space of time and we go a little while without many. Yep. So it is pretty common, but it, we are a tertiary referral centre, so it's less common for those of our listeners who don't work in that sort of setting. Okay, so in the antenatal period, there's some things that we need to decide. First is where is the patient best to be delivered? Um, and so usually that is a, a dedicated centre that's used to caring for these patients. What are the things that uh, this sort of centre needs? It's mainly the personnel, I think, um, grabbed. So, so it's the surgical staff who are experienced um, in managing this patient, anaesthetic staff who has experienced as well. Obviously, um, you know, with catastrophic hemorrhage, you need to have a centre that can um, you know, supply blood products. Um, and then there's some other things which, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of people would have on the list, but in fact, some centres don't have. But definitely cell cell, which we uh, have that, uh, but you can, you know, make, make a point that it is possible to do these cases without it, although I think most patients do now. You need an HD or an ICU to place the patient in afterwards. Um, radiology and in, or um, interventional sort of radiological techniques. Now, some, some centres don't have that, but uh, in the ideal world, that would be um, a good thing to have as well, mm. certainly for the really severe cases. Uh, Anything uh, else? Uh, I think uh, the capacity to rapidly infuse fluids. Yep, the, that's right. So I think most sort of tertiary sort of... Uh, um, theatres will have all those sorts of devices. We're going to touch on those in a minute, Graham. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so that's the where and the who. Uh, when. This We'll probably talk about this when we do another podcast when we're, I'm going to talk to some of my surgical colleagues. Mm. But usually it's a, it's a compromise, basically, balancing the um, concerns of the fetus, trying to get it um, as far enough along that it's, it's not going to be compromised by um, diseases of prematurity. And then, of course, the mother. So as the pregnancy progresses, often, um, especially... In um, percreta, the um, this condition can worsen. You know, the uh, the spread of the um, placenta can um, get worse, I guess. And uh, that that obviously is going to the bigger it gets, the more it's going to compromise the mother at birth. Um, so my experience is that usually sometime between 32 to 36 weeks seems to be when they um, uh, come to theatre for their um, delivery, and often they don't make it. So a date is fixed, but they may have some angiopartum bleeding and uh, it's, things are brought forward in a hurry. Mm. With some problem with the newborn. Yep. On scan, oh, sorry, on the fetus on scanning, there's, there's often a, um, a reason why your, your great uh, elective plans are changed. Yep. Now, I've written a few notes here, but I'm going to talk about... So what are the sort of things... Perhaps we'll talk about the anaesthetic technique first, so we'll skip the actual on the day. So the anaesthetic techniques... Um, so you can do um, just broadly you can do a regional um, or you can just do a GA from the start and I've um, certainly seen both done my personal opinion Graham is that in the severe sort of percretors 
Uh, I tend to recommend to the patient to have a GA from the start now because it's a big midline incision um, and there's usually a lot of um, surgical um, activity for an hour or so or even longer putting in ureteric stents, uh, identifying the spread of the pecorita in the bladder and things like that, um, such that it's quite difficult for uh, to keep the patient comfortable for a long period of time before the baby's even delivered, uh, especially with a high midline incision. And I also actually, um, I don't like the idea of having to induce a GA during catastrophic hemorrhage. I prefer to have a secure area from the start. What, what are your thoughts? I, I agree. I think with uh, the scent of the creta, that a GA from the start is preferred. Sometimes a hybrid anaesthetic is provided for the accreta or increta's because of the duration of surgery. Uh, for those patients, sometimes they started with the regional till the time of delivery of the uh, newborn and got and gotten off to sleep yep. for completion of the surgery. But there is usually a period of time, about an hour, before delivery of the newborn. And the newborn's often delivered um, uh, and then uh, shortly afterwards, partner and baby taken, mother off to sleep. Yep. Mm. Yep, so that's definitely an option as well. Uh, my only, uh, I guess the only thing I'm going to just um, briefly mention is if you are planning on to do a regional from the start, it is a very good idea to have in your head um, all the equipment that you need to induce someone uh, in shock ready to go. So, because catastrophic bleeding can occur actually uh, unexpectedly, um, even before the baby's born. and um, So I usually make sure that I have some ketamine drawn up and some um, muscle relaxant in it, and I don't have to rely on asking a staff member to run around with keys to try and find all that stuff because sometimes things happen suddenly um, and you never really know when you're going to have to change the plan. Mm. And um, again, and again uh, the surgery often involves the patient in lithotomy and I know from a practical point of view that the surgeons want the patient down the table and you have the fight, you want the patient up the table. So, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it can get messy if you haven't made those plans in advance. Yep. As to uh, what your cutoff will be in terms of conversion um, in the event of bleeding. Yep. Okay. Mm. So these are all the things that we discuss. So, so um, the patient should be seen by the um, uh, a senior anaesthetic um, team member, uh, and this is this is uh, the anaesthetic technique discussed. One of the other things which uh, I think we should also mention, which is really key, I think, in um, improving the safety. Um, for the mother is optimising the red cell mass prior to delivery. So you should definitely be fairly aggressive in trying to ma uh, maximise their red cell mass. So treat any iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia, uh, for example. And uh, to be honest, that usually involves intravenous iron. So if they have a low ferritin and or anemia, um, you want to top them up with some intravenous iron uh, because that works within a few weeks, which is really the only amount of time you've got. Oral iron is just a bit slow, I think. Um, if they aren't anemic uh, or iron deficient, it's probably not a bad idea to just put them on some iron tablets as well because um, hopefully then they will stop them from becoming anemic. Yes. Um, all right, we've, so I mentioned that. So as well as the anaesthetic, whatever anaesthetic technique you decide to use, um, we'll talk about analgesia, post-op analgesia later, but mm. maybe to what are the sort of lines that you'd like to use in these cases? I'd like to use uh, absolutely reliable wide-bore cannula. So yep. um, 16 or 14 gauge cannula. Yep, so I'm gonna jump in there and say I'd not, I don't accept a 16 gauge, that's too small in my mind. Um, so we should be giving, if things uh, turn pear-shaped, um, 
know, uh, warm and fast fluid infusions and I think the Belmont uh, or the Level 1, which are the two sort of rapid infusing devices that are on the market, both say you need to have 14 gauge um, or greater. I have seen people use these devices on 16 gauge cannulas, but I think go for something big. And certainly if you can't get a 14 gauge, you know, really good working 14 gauge peripheral cannulas in, then um, you should be looking to put in a recline or a macline or a swan sheath in the neck or under the, in the subclavian. Yes, uh, I think it's what eight and a half or a nine French line, and it yep. easily allows half a litre a minute under gravity from a metre height, so under pressure, yep. much higher volumes <coughs> per unit. And time. I don't want to digress, but I, uh, I think the Belmont, if anyone's uh, not familiar with it, um, uh, the more experience we've got with that, it's definitely better than the level one. It seems to be such a um, elegant machine, um, and it, it works on a roller pump sort of. Um, principle similar to cardiopulmonary bypass machines. Are we getting another one Roger? Another oh, I hope we, so. We've got one yeah. uh, and hopefully we'll get some money for another one. That's good. Um, and obviously an arterial line as well. Uh, so uh, and what, if, what about when we're talking to the patient pre-op about the analgesia? What are the different options? There's, there's a million ways to skin a cat and there's so many different ways to do this. So basically yes. it's any, any form of analgesia that you can use for a midline laparotomy. Exactly. And I think yeah. you'd be prepared for the midline laparotomy and um, don't hesitate to remind the surgeons yep. that a midline laparotomy is likely to provide them with better access to blood vessels to control bleeding than is a fanosteel incision. Yep, that's right. And so I, it's very rare to actually see someone do a fanosteel incision nowadays, although sometimes I think um, if, if it's a suspected accretor, but, um, so they don't, they're not planning to do a Caesar hysterectomy. Occasionally you see them do the fat and steel. Exactly. Okay, so, and so the different analgesic options yeah. that I've seen used, thoracic epidural, dried and trusted, uh, intrathecal morphine, Perfect. rectus sheath catheters, and even an intravenous lignocaine, which we're lucky enough to have the ability to run for two or three days in our HDU, mm-hmm. um, as well as obviously uh, parenteral opioids. Okay, Ketamine so. Ketamine if required. Yeah, all the, all the, um, the other um, adjuncts. Okay, so those are the sort of things uh, uh, that we would discuss um, beforehand and make a plan about. So on the day, um, one of the things we do um, before we start a list nowadays is have a team huddle, and I think uh, this is the perfect sort of case for that. So we get everyone together in the in the theatre. We, we usually um, try to have these cases as the first one, sometimes it's second, uh, but early on. And so everyone gets around, introduces themselves, and just we discuss everything. So I think the key to a safe management of these patients is good communication and everyone knowing what everyone else is doing. So we want to know, or as an anaesthetist anyway, we want to know what the surgical plan is. You know, um, what are you doing with the bladder and the ureters? What are you, are you planning on trying to detach the placenta if it's, if it's only a suspected accretor? Um, are you just going to go straight for a caesar hysterectomy? Who's going to be scrubbed in, et cetera? Um, I'm I guess, of course, they want to know whether we're planning on doing a regional or a GA. Uh, a little point, I think it's important to make sure the neonatologists or the paediatricians involved in this discussion, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're going to do a GA from the start, let them know uh, so they've got an you know, experienced person down there because if, if the mother's asleep for an hour and a half, the baby's coming out flat as well. I've seen that happening. Oh, many times. Catch, I've seen them, a few paediatricians get caught unawares. Yes. Um, Hem- the hematology we haven't mentioned. We haven't mentioned them yet, so get them involved in optimising the red cells uh, and minimising anemia. 
and make um, sure the blood banks got products available. That's right. Yeah. So we're going to get onto that. So make sure there's no problems cross matching them. Get um, uh, blood cross match. So after the, I'll, I'll just finish what I mentioned, or I like to talk about in the team huddle, and then we'll talk about some of the other things that I like to do before you start. Um, so actually, in the team huddle, where everyone's just standing around talking, I like to say who's going to be doing the cell salvage and. It's usually a nurse or sometimes it's a junior doctor. It's, it's often not anyone who's that experienced. Make sure they know what to, how to do it uh, and that they're going to be expected to do it. I often um, just ask for one suction now. Um, so that, this could be a discussion from another talk, but um, a lot of centres, up to 60 or 70% of centres in the UK now that uh, were in the Salvo study of big obstetric self-selfish, so they all just use one suction. Uh, that way the surgeons have to suck up the blood, if that makes sense. Certainly doesn't make sense to suck up two litres of amniotic fluid, so if the patient has a lot of amniotic fluid, maybe consider um, sucking that off into another device. Um, but one suction tends to work pretty well for a lot of these cases. And then also like to say um, to the surgeons, if things go really pear-shaped and the uh, cardiovascular collapse in shoes, which one of you p people in the surgical field is going to compress the aorta for us? Oh, yeah, so not, it's nice is, to mention it. I think that is. Uh, so then they have in their head they know that we're going to ask them to do it. That the person that's going to do it knows that they're going to be asked to do it, and they've thought about it. Yeah, very important prompt. Yeah. Is there anything else that you reckon we should be discussed in the team huddle? I can't think of anything either. Oh, I guess if you had um, interventional yes. radiology, um, you need to talk about that as well. So you know they they should be involved in the team huddle, and obviously that that's and this is going to need to be placed. Um, um, prior to starting the surgery and um, discussion about when they're going to inflate things. So that we haven't actually mentioned that, have we? But we don't use it in our hospital. But the, the things that are used, um, you know, classic descriptions are prophylactic um, uh, iliac artery balloons. Yes. Um, but also I know that, um, some centres uh, use reboas now. Yeah. Um, and you need, most people I think use interventional radiologists. There's some vascular surgeons that can put those in. Mm -hmm. um, and that would have to be in a um, sort of hybrid theatre that has a C-arm and, and uh, radiology. Mm. I think we covered most of that, didn't we? Yeah, I think so. Um, just, uh... So um, before so before we start, so now let's just say we've done the um, the lines. We've, we're going to do us some intrathecal morphine or epidural. I've put that in. Um, we've done our regional technique. I like to make sure there's actually a couple of units of blood at least in theatre. Yes. Uh, we'll, uh, use, make sure it's the theatre fridge, not actually just sitting in an esky, because uh, obviously then that um, compromises it. Um, and I like to do in our hospital a baseline rotum. Um, some people say, why, why do you bother? Well, I'd like to know how much hemostatic reserve they have. So if they've got a, a Fib TMA5 of 30, which is like three times the, the level that you need to replace things, and you know that they can lose at least probably three or four litres of blood um, before you're going to need to start um, augmenting coagulation with fibrinogen, for example. Um, or if you do a baseline rotum, which I have seen in one patient who had a creta, and the FIB-TMA5 was only 11, you know that they're actually already on slash under yes. the trigger for a replacement. And so if they lose one or two litres of blood, you know straight away you're going to start need to thaw, cry, or et cetera. And some of these patients do bleed antipartum, you know. Uh, that's right, that's, yeah. That uh, can be an ongoing problem, and you can underestimate how much blood they've lost in those situations. Yep. And so you, you can tell it on the XM um, if someone has high or low platelets, but also just look at the full blood count and see what the platelet count is, because it's not unusual in pregnancy to have lower platelet counts. Um, and so, yeah, it, obviously if someone has lowish uh, platelet count, 
it wouldn't be unreasonable to make sure that you have some platelets in your hospital. Not all hospitals have on-site platelets. Okay, so that was good, Graham. Yeah, um, I agree. Let's keep going. So what about, so now the case starts. Um, I actually give tranexamic acid at the start of the case. I know, you know, almost know for certain they're going to bleed. Um, and there's lots of evidence in um, uh, the literature showing that um, it, it just in, in, you know, I think there's a Cochrane review on tranexamic acid for, elect for elective caesareans showing that it decreases blood loss. I think it's pretty safe. These patients, you, the risk benefit is pretty swung in, in um, the direction of giving tranexamic acid preemptively in someone who's about to have a catastrophic hemorrhage. Is there any uh, concerns with respect to transplacental tranexamic acid? This discussion has come up, not that I'm aware of. I think um, I don't, I'm not advocating giving tranexamic acid to normal elective caesarean patients routinely. Uh, but in my mind, the benefit of um, of it uh, outweighs any sort of theoretical discussion on that on that aspect of it in uh, someone who's got a percreta or an accreta. Yes. Um, all right. So that's the one thing. And so, would you infuse that over twenty minutes, the one gram of tranexamic acid? Um, yeah, listen, I actually, I just sort of titrated in um, over about five minutes and um, I draw it up in 10 mils and just give a little bit at a time uh, yeah. over five minutes. Okay. Yep. Whether they're asleep or awake, that doesn't seem to cause any problems. Yep. Okay, so what's the, so my my motto during the uh, during the case is the same as the American Society of Anesthesiology, it's vigilance mm. and communication. So mm. basically, this is more important than some straightforward surgery. I, I, I have my head over the drapes slash I'm down the bottom end looking under the drapes the whole case pretty much um, there's always two of us in theatre you know um, this is not the sort of case that you want one anaesthetist and the bottom line is that at any stage catastrophic bleeding can suddenly occur um, during the delivery or during the careful sort of hysterectomy that they often perform you know they're manipulating the uterus around and unexpectedly the placenta can um, dehiss from the myometrium and catastrophic bleeding can occur. We haven't mentioned uh, uterotonic drugs, have we? But we are going to mention them. Good. So you're That's right. So important. now, uh, so so this is so often uh, in my experience, the plan is that they do a midline incision and deliver the baby out out of the fundus or upper part of the uterus, away from wherever the accreta and placenta is lying, and they hopefully don't cause any sort of um, bleeding during that. Um, although obviously it could occur, and then they gently try and close that up, uh, provide a bit of hemostasis to the edge, edge of the wound, and then perform the uh, hysterectomy. Yes. Now, key point here, uh, which I think a few of our colleagues um, and myself have, want, have, have noted, is that um, once they close that uterus, the surgeons will be unaware if, the, if uh, catastrophic bleeding ensues because it all actually is either concealed inside the uterus or more commonly starts pouring out the vagina. Mm. Um, and so you need to be very um, vigilant down that end. I often go down and look myself, you know, lift up the drapes and peer between their legs uh, or give that job or explain to the, one of the theatre nurses who's down that end, yeah, can they please do that every two or three minutes and just tell me if there's lots of blood pouring into the pouch uh, or onto the... Um, the uh, person who's standing there is uh, the gumboots. Mm. I have seen like, you know, three or four litres pour out someone's vagina in about five minutes. Yes. Um, if at any stage catastrophic bleeding occurs, I'm of the opinion that um, someone should apply manual aortic compression until the um, hysterectomy is completed or until some, some form of vascular control is achieved. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, now, so the discussion about oxytocin drugs and oxytocin mainly, but any oxytocin drugs. It's, uh, it's a tricky one. So um, there is some opinion out there that if the placenta and um, is still attached and there is no bleeding, that um, it's safer to not give oxytocin. Um, and I think the theory and the discussion behind that is that, is that causing a very vigorous contraction of the uterus can then could possibly actually cause it to separate as, as occurs naturally. Yes. Yeah. And that could cause catastrophic bleeding. So if there's no problem, especially you know while they're doing the hysterectomy, you know don't don't contract the uterus if if it's all stable and there's no bleeding occurring. Yes, I mean there, but, us there usually is some bleeding occurring. Yeah, but it's not. But that might just be like a little bit of bleeding around where the incision was made on the myometrium for this for the delivery of the infant. Um, In my experience, uh, as the uh, hysterectomy proceeds, the uterus um, does become distended with blood yep. where the where the bleeding is concealed yeah so i think in my mind anyway if the placenta comes away and catastrophic bleeding ensues then the benefit of uh giving oxytocin to to contract some myometrium around those vessels and try and staunch the bleeding is is um indicated exactly. so so basically have it all ready to go don't you don't give oxytocin or oxytocin if there is no bleeding but if any bleeding does occur, um, get on and give it. Yeah, and, and, and absolutely communicate, be vigilant and communicate with the uh, yeah. obstetrician as to what is occurring. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So that's a good discussion to have um, explained that um, before you start the case. Mm. All right, that's good. We've already talked about... Um, so if you're doing it... So if catastrophic bleeding occurs in, your, in the patient's under a regional, then that becomes tricky for us. So um, you want someone to escort the partner and the baby out of the room, or well, if the baby's not out, then obviously just the partner, mm. and you want to have a plan for inducing them safely. So my go-to is, I um, must say, is, is um, uh, ketamine and sucks. Yes. Yep. If they have a difficult airway, I think you should definitely do a GA from the start. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to be managing a difficult airway in a catastrophic situation. No. Um, and during the blood loss, so during the so if catastrophic bleeding occurs, um, my principles are uh, this is I don't know if you what your thoughts are, Graham. So I try to if I know that the um, fibrin is lowish, I'll just empirically give some fibrinogen uh, with the uh, red cells. Um, but if I know they've got a lot of hemostatic reserve, I might just give red cells and uh, check it with a rotum. I aim to keep the blood pressure low normal, so I'm not a big believer in permissive hypotension, but I definitely think you should avoid hypertension. Yes. So you know, maybe just aim to keep their blood pressure in the low normal range. Map of 65. Keep the hemoglobin greater than 70 today, although don't panic, um, because certainly, especially when you're sucking all the blood up, mm. you know you're going to give them quite a lot back. We uh, routinely give back um, uh, you know, quite a lot of the, of the blood from these cases. So. Um, especially if it's not catastrophic bleeding and they tell you that it's almost the hysterectomy is almost done and it's all pretty calm I will be quite happy to hold off on giving them some red cells um, for, for a period of time because um, I know that I'm going to top them up with um, blood afterwards and in fact I've done a few few pacretas where uh, they haven't they've bled um, two and a half three litres and I haven't given them any allogeneic blood just their own blood back and they've ended up with hemoglobins over 100 yeah similarly so yeah. So all they had was tranexamic acid in their own blood. Yes. And they um, and then they were fine afterwards. Having said that, we have had a few uh, 
infamous cases in our institution, one being an unexpected percreta about nine years ago where someone had over 100 units of blood products yes. um, overnight. And I've, I have seen a um, case report of a uh, case from Melbourne where, which sounded very similar where they um, uh, basically emptied the blood bank in the town. So I think we more than emptied the blood bank in this we town. We did. The hematologist from interstate. Yeah, the hematologist from the Red Cross. Uh, I saw him the week after, and he said he had to get up at six a.m. and go to Jandakot Airport to see the um, to meet the plane that was coming out from Sydney with the replacement uh, mm. blood, blood pro, uh, red cells. Um, all right. Uh, so the, so usually um, at the end of the case, you're going to make a decision about the post-op um, uh, location. Mm. I say disposition. Mm. Your grammar is much better than my my poor England. I don't speak good England. Um, so I must say the majority of our patients we just put in an HDU. I think uh, in my mind if they need like, like sort of relatively high dose vasopressors or there's any concern about needing respiratory support, then ICU is the place to go. Exactly. Um, most real hospitals have an ICU and they just put them in the ICU. Uh, and then the only decision they have then is should we extubate or just leave them intubated for a while. Exactly. We don't have that luxury. We don't have that luxury. No. We have to make a decision. <laughs> that's right. Um, I think that's probably almost enough to talk about, isn't it? So yes. post-op recovery, uh, uh, intravenous iron uh, is is pretty useful for um, the blood loss as well. Um, so just a rough rule of thumb: if a one liter of um, blood contains about 500 milligrams of iron, so that's that's a good rough rule of thumb if you want to top uh, also help augment the patient's own ability to recover from their um, postpartum anemia. Mm. Any parting comments, Graham? I, I think all of this Take that we've points. spoken about, it's important that the patients understand this in advance yep. because uh, many patients come with fixed ideas about the uh, form of anaesthetic they'll have for their caesarean. This is a very different case to... Uh, anything else they will have spoken That's with right. their and friends or others That's health right. so professionals the about. majority of them have had a caesarean before and that's the reason why they've got an accretor mm. and um, they're a bit confused as to why all this palaver is occurring. Exactly. So it's key to have someone sit down with plenty of time to go through everything and explain all this stuff. Take home points I reckon, uh, things to remember, are, um, yeah listen I reckon team huddle, everyone should do a team huddle and communication, uh, vigilance. Don't forget aortic compression. I've seen it get people out of trouble um, quite a few times over the years. All right, we might end it there. Thanks again, Graham. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Roger. Good discussion. Very good discussion. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.